Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. Uh, Revelation is the first chapter. I'm going to read from the Passion Translation. And did you get verse one? Ah, look at you. Y'all are fast. Um, About seven or eight months ago, I woke up early in the morning and I woke Nicole up and told her that I heard the Lord say, write the revelation of Jesus. And I knew it meant to write songs from the book of Revelation, write a new worship project and all of the songs will be taken taken from the book of Revelation. Revelation is a daunting chapter. There's some dark chapters and scary images, monsters, locusts, beasts, seals, plagues. And so uh, I know that a lot of people in the body of Christ try to stay away from the book of Revelation and they miss the beauty of the unveiling of Jesus. So I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to sing a couple things. Is that all right? I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. I want to read this. We know that in, in the King James Version, it says the opening sentence is the revelation of Jesus Christ. But I'm going to read this. This is the unveiling of Jesus Christ which God gave him to share with his loving servants what must occur swiftly. He signified it by sending his angel to his loving servant, John. John bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. A joyous blessing rests upon the one who reads this message and upon those who hear and embrace the words of this prophecy. For the appointed time is in your hands. Say that. The appointed time is in your hands. It makes me think of the scripture when Jesus said to many times, repent for the kingdom of heaven is in your hands. (laughs) From John to the seven churches in western Turkey. May the kindness of God's grace and peace overflow to you from him who is and who was and who is coming. And from the seven spirits who are in front of his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The firstborn from among the dead. And the ruling king who rules over the kings of the earth. Now to the one who constantly loves us and has loosed us. From our sins by his own blood. And to the one who has appointed us as a kingdom of priests. He's talking about us. To serve his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion throughout the eternity of eternities. 
Amen. Behold, he appears within the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the people of the earth will weep with sorrow because of him, and so it is to be. Amen. I am the Aleph and the Tav, the beginning and the ending, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, am your brother and companion in tribulation, the kingdom and the patience that are found in Jesus. I was exiled on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Remember I shared with you at the beginning of this, he was exiled because of the gospel of Jesus. He was exiled on this prison island because of the word of God. Then he said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice sounding like a trumpet, saying to me, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. When I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands. And walking among the lampstands, I saw someone like a son of man, wearing a full-length robe with a golden sash over his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as glistening snow. And his eyes were flames of fire. His feet were gleaming like bright metal as though they were glowing in a fire. And his voice was like the roar of many rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. And his face was shining like the brightness of the blinding sun. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as good as dead. But he laid his right hand on me. And I heard his reassuring voice saying, don't yield to fear. I am the beginning and the end, the living one. I was dead, but now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys that unlock death and the unseen world. Now I want you to write what you have seen, what is, what comes after the things that I reveal to you. The mystery of the lampstands and the seven stars is this. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. And the seven stars in my right hand are the seven messengers of the seven churches. spirit on the Lord's day caught up in the fire as your eyes blaze I see you I see you draped across your chest a 
sash of glory. Your head, your hair, the purest white are glowing. I see hard to stop playing when you feel the flow coming and you want to keep going and going and going but I have to shift gears into being the pastor I'm going to bring my sword my paper sword and my digital sword So we've been digging for weeks. That sounded very Southern, didn't it? Digging. We have been digging for months and months and mining in the book of Revelation. And we started in the first chapter, and then Tanner took us to the second and the third chapter, and then John took us to the fourth chapter, and suddenly I find myself back at the first chapter. I can't get away from this initial vision that John sees. The last word on Christ. Famous last words. Today I'm going to talk about the last word on Christ. I've been uh, studying Eugene Peterson's book called Reverse Thunder. And it's an amazing, incredible resource of information. I'm going to read this verse 
from the book of Psalms, the 80th chapter, starting with verse 17. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man. Everybody say, son of man, whom you made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts, cause your, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Back to Revelation 1, verse 12 and 13. This will be in the New King James Version. This is essentially my text today. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw Seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like everybody together. I may call on you to say throughout this sermon. I want you to I want you to understand. I'm in a, in a few minutes. I will I will show you the contrast uh, from the book of Daniel. Throughout scripture, there are messianic prophetic psalms that I just read you one about the Son of Man. But in scripture, throughout the whole life of the people of God on this planet, from Genesis to Abraham to Samuel the prophet to King David to King Solomon and all the other kings that that did right and then that slipped and fell. And as a result of kings and the nation drawing away from God, they eventually were taken into captivity to Babylon. Everybody say Babylon. And in this captivity, for the first time in Scripture, this term, the Son of Man, is used. Daniel has this glorious vision of one that would come and reign. He would have a glorious kingdom. I'll read it in a few minutes. But I just want to lay out this concept that Daniel's vision of the Son of Man set the stage for a lot of confusion for the people of God when Jesus first came to the earth. He painted this glorious picture. And in fact, it was glorious. He was born. The angels broke into the heavens and announced to shepherds. But the shepherds were the only one who saw it. They didn't have a pulpit or a TV station. It was just the shepherds. And angels announced the coming of Messiah. Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. But for the first, save when he was 12 years old, he was teaching in the temple. He, you know, the, the family went to, uh, to bring their annual sacrifice. And the, the whole troop of people left. And they realized after traveling today that Jesus wasn't with them. And they came and found him. That was pretty extraordinary. But it wasn't on display. After that, G Jesus laid low. Their expectation was that Messiah would come and destroy the political climate. They would, he would overthrow the Romans. That's their perception. Daniel didn't say he would overthrow the Romans. 
He didn't say that, but the, his picture of the Son of Man, say the Son of Man, caused them to consider that when he came, he would overthrow everything they knew. They were captive for 70 years. Then they were set free and they came and rebuilt the walls in Jerusalem. But for hundreds of years now, nothing, silence, no prophetic words. But they have this promise they're holding on to from Daniel that the Messiah would come and his kingdom would be powerful and he would reign. And then comes Jesus. And it doesn't happen like they expected. The Son of Man. There's another uh, place in the book of Daniel where there were three men thrown into a fiery furnace because they refused to bow to a wicked king. Then this king calls his men and said, did we not throw three men into the fire? And I see a fourth man that looks like It's amazing that even two ungodly people, when Jesus reveals himself, this extraordinary encounter of a man walking in the fire with these three Hebrew boys, and he immediately describes him as, with no prophetic history, he declares him the son of man. Okay, so let me get into my story. Uh, I'll just tell you right now, I can't do this quickly, so just bear with me today, all right? In the opening words of this final book of the Bible, the very first five words are the revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of, that's a preposition. This preposition carries a double meaning. Number one, the revelation is about Jesus. And number two, the revelation comes from Jesus. Jesus Christ is both the content of the revelation and the agent, the messenger of the revelation. Jesus Christ is the way in which God reveals himself to us. He's Jesus Christ is also God himself being revealed to us. It follows then that revelation is, in the first place, not information about the bad world we live in. I like the sound of that sentence the way it came out of my mouth. <laughs> Revelation is not information about the bad world we live in. Our report of the first century church under persecution. First of all, it is a proclamation by Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ. All of the items, all of the details are only given to us to create a picture to point us to Jesus. It's difficult to keep your focus when you study all of Scripture. We keep reading through every year as a, as a church. I don't know how many of you are still with me. 
I see one thumbs up. Thank you, sir. Maybe there's more. Two, thank you, ma'am. I just called my wife ma'am. Yes, I see you. I see more. There are so many fascinating symbols to observe. Many intriguing subjects to take in. That only a highly disciplined imagination can hold everything in subordination to Jesus. But it's the only way revelation can be read sanely. It is the only way any scripture can be read rightly. Everywhere and always. Every page points to Jesus. From the beginning, I will bruise the serpent's head and you will crush. God, that's such a re wonderful reference of what Jesus does. Uh, it's just throughout scripture, it points to Jesus. He is the center. Without this controlling center, the Bible is a mere encyclopedia with no more plot than a telephone directory. People who do not take these opening words at their full value will very likely end up using the revelation as a litmus test instead of a religious text. Reading more into the ink than they read out of it. A conscientious reader of the Bible is always in danger of ending up with a mind full of unsourced information. talking snake. Jacob's floating axe head. A curious repeated law in the early part of the Old Testament about not boiling a kid in its mother's milk. What? Did you ever read past that? What? What? I'm glad all the kids are out of here. We know they're not talking about a kid, <laughs> talking about a goat. Don't boil a kid in its mother's goat. Or there's also these crazy genealogies that we read through. And there's so much detail, like the name of Abishur's wife was Abigail. And she bore him Aban and Molid. I didn't feel the Holy Ghost when I read that passage of scripture and he begat and he begat, but he's given us a lot of scripture. What my point is we have to be careful not to let our minds wander. There are these prophetic utterances that come from these great men of God that begin with thus saith the Lord. If you ever were in a raised in a, Pentecostal church, at least in my day, I was, it was always captivating when anyone stepped up and began a prophetic declaration with, thus saith the Lord. And I'm a kid and I'm like, what is he going to say? <laughs> and then there's this, the use of, of aphorisms. 
an aphorism is um, it's 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 an observation about something that contains a general truth like if it ain't broke don't fix it you ever use that term there's also aphorisms in the Bible that say things like you are the salt of the earth the light of the world or what about these paradoxes written by Paul I am crucified with Christ it is no longer I who lives but Christ who lives in me or this other passage of scripture that we use in a lot of funerals to eulogize great men or women that served God I fought a good fight I finished the race I've kept the faith by the time we get to Jude it's entirely possible to be completely puzzled by this mention of Michael the archangel wrestling contesting the body of Mo for the body of Moses it's like why is that even there there's so much information, so many beautiful pictures, so many stories, so many prophecies that if we're not careful and maintain some kind of theme or strategy, we, we can get lost in all of the information. But then you turn the page. Jude is just one little small chapter. I would encourage you to go read it today. You turn the page and we find after a few introductory sentences, a magnificent Christ. Described in such a way that everything, absolutely everything is surrendered to him. This Christ has been suggested all the way back to Genesis. Anticipated, prayed for. He's been promised in the Hebrew scriptures. He has been taught and preached in the epistles. He has been presented in the gospels. Careful reading and sustained attention would have maintained awareness throughout. Oh, that's about Christ. But we do not always read carefully. Our attention wanders and we patter off into denominational arguments about the Godhead, our atonement, our predestination, and we make cases and split churches over arguments. And then John's vision interrupts us we're startled out of our arguments our imaginations are kindled with the vision of Christ we are aroused attentive alert everything suddenly comes into proportion Christ is last word the last word controls all of the preceding words up to this point the revelation gives us the last word on Christ 
And the word is that Christ is center. We can understand nothing if we don't have a center. Now we can soberly discern all of these vines, these unusual scriptures. Once you see Jesus, all of these scriptures point to him. Ask Peter. When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Well, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. But who do you say I am? And Peter steps up and said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And in that moment of revelation, Jesus said, upon this rock, I'll build my church. This rock was considered his his ability to see who Jesus really was, was considered revelation. Remember the rock. There's a, there's, when we were talking about Daniel, there's, there's another uh, picture in Daniel when there's this, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this beautiful image made of all of these metals and iron and brass and, and bronze, very similar to the description of the makeup of Jesus in the book of Revelation, except in Daniel, the feet were made of clay and iron, and they don't mix well. And the word then says, a rock is thrown without a hand at this incredible image, and boom, and it shatters to pieces because the base of it wasn't strong enough to sustain it. And the word tells us in, in Daniel that the rock became a huge mountain and ruled over the earth. The rock, upon this rock of revelation, Jesus, the rock, came crashing in on this image that the people had of what they thought the Messiah would be, and it crushed their image. How do we keep Jesus at the center? A shepherd, a shepherd Christ tending his flock on the Galilean hills. The son of man. A benevolent Christ holding little children in his arms. A tragic Christ nailed to a cross. A compassionate Christ touching a leper. Christ in sharp-tongued dialogue with Nicodemus. You remember that story? What must I do to be saved? And he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. Born again? How can I enter again into my mother's womb? And he said, Nicodemus, that which is born of spirit is spirit, and that which is born of flesh is flesh. The spirit blows, the wind blows where it wills. This, this, this dialogue that he's having with Nicodemus, all of these details, all of this dialogue in previous scripture, prophetic promises and gospel stories, the possibilities are endless. We could go for years and years and years on all of these stories. But then here we are, first chapter of 
Revelation, John is commanded by the trumpet voice to begin his writing by describing a vision of Christ like a son of man. The phrase, I told you, originates in Daniel. I'll, I'll read that. I'll read you this. Daniel, the seventh chapter, starting with verse 13, 13 and 14, a couple of verses. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. I like it in the message translation. Daniel, uh, this is actually hearing the dream. My dream continued. I saw a human form, a son of man, arriving in a whirl of clouds. I like that image. I like, I, I like hearing it that way. He came to the old one and was presented to him. He was given power to rule all the glory of royalty. Everyone, race, color, and creed had to serve him. His rule would be forever, never ending. His kingly rule would never be replaced. <clears throat> Son of man. Everybody say, Son of man. It's a commanding, redeeming, glorious figure. He's not a pale Galilean, but a towering and furious figure who will not be managed. No wonder the people of Israel struggled with this. Jesus as the Son of Man. When he designated himself, Son of Man, which he did frequently. It could have only evoked puzzled reaction. This ordinary rabbi, the Son of Man? Where are the lightning flashes and the flowing robes? His use of the title aroused expectations of redemption. His refusal to call down legions of angels and establish his power dashed those expectations. Yet he continued to insist on the title. It's hard for us to imagine this incongruity, that's a big word, incongruity, of this person self-designated as the son of man hanging, pierced, and bleeding on a cross. It's less dramatic, but even more offensive when this son of man has dinner with a prostitute. Stops off for lunch with a tax collector. Wastes time blessing children. 
when there are Roman legions to be chased out of the land. He heals unimportant losers and ignores high-achieving Pharisees and Sadducees. He contrasted the most glorious title with the most menial lifestyle. He talked like a king and acted like a slave. He preached with authority but lived like a vagabond. The first generation of disciples and, and believers had the task of accepting this glorious title, Son of Man, as the truth about this very human Jesus of Nazareth who spoke their language, ate fish and shish kebab with them, got tired and fell asleep right before their eyes. This Daniel's vision of the Son of Man assimilated into the dailiness of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, as we approach John on the Isle of Patmos, there have been a couple of generations experiencing between 60 to 70 years of persecution with nothing but their faith and one remaining eyewitness John the Beloved, all the rest were gone. All they have are stories that they pass down from generation to generation to their children and then their children. All they have is this story and this, this message in the prophets. They didn't have a Bible like we have today. They just shared stories. They had the first five books of the Bible and some of the prophetic writings, but they didn't have their own copy. There were no printing presses. They had to go to the sanctuary, to the synagogue. It was time to reintroduce the apocalyptic splendor of Daniel's vision. Son of man, it is appropriate that this be the last word. The great danger is that the largeness and mystery of Christ be lost with religion and become flat. Historical Christianity had grown cold. Read about it in Jude. Read about all the persecution leading up to this point. Uh, consider John himself rejected. His message to all consideration was a failure. They arrested him and put him in jail. They tried to kill him, boiled him in oil, but he wouldn't die. And then they separated him from his congregations. Much like today, Christianity has grown cold. But Christ came to send heavenly fire on the earth. And so the last word on Christ is glorious. 
Daniel's vision of the Son of Man. His vision has passed through the years of Jesus' passion on the earth. The early church's tribulation. John sees and hears and then declares, I turn to see the voice. And he has our attention. If you read it, if you read it and you decide to take off the lens of fear and try to kind of work your way into this message and you forget about the mark of the beast that comes up in a few chapters and you forget about all of the the dark chapters and, and you allow yourself to see this glorious Jesus that John saw. John said, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man. The lampstands are identified. That was, uh, that was just at the beginning of the chapter. The lampstands are identified a few lines later in the 20th verse as churches. The Son of Man. The site of his birth was a manger, and the palace of his coronation was a cross. God deliberately set Jesus among the common and the flawed. He's never known in any other context. The revelation of Christ is not embarrassed or compromised by association with the church, the flawed church. It's his will to identify himself. He said, I saw amongst the lampstands, which, which represented the churches. It's his will to identify himself in a revelation in the community of faith. It's understandable that there are many who resent having to deal with the church when they are only interested in Jesus. There are people at home today, and I'm not judging you, as I look at you on the camera, there are people at home today because they don't want to deal with the superstitious or the the hypocrites, the cowards, the ambiguity. The whole business of religion is so susceptible to superstition and fraud that it's no wonder that many refuse to be associated with the church and seek Christ in other ways or other places. But Christ is known by faith as the pre, to pre-exist with the Father. Even before Genesis, he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He's believed to be glorious in the heavens. As we imagine him, we see a different Jesus than we saw on the earth. But he is received in everyday in the everyday environment of the church and the company of people who gather to worship. So, so let's, I'm going to shift a little bit. The vision of Christ begins when John sees and starts writing in to show us what he's saying. The, the, the vision begins with the description of his clothing. A long robe with a golden girdle, or one, that one translation I read, a, a, a sash of glory across his breast. Before we know what the Son of Man looks like, we know what he does. 
because clothing defines role. He is vested in priestly garments, reminiscent of, of the garments that Aaron wore in Exodus. That when he, we just were reading through uh, Exodus a, a few days ago, and it describes Aaron's priestly garments, I believe in the 29th chapter. But according to this description, the Son of Man is a priest. Just as a police officer's uniform creates a set of expectations in the person who meet him. So this priestly dress shapes our responses that develop as the details unfold. A priest is a bridge. A priest presents God to us. He also presents us to God. He brings together the divine and the human. A priest mediates. He is just as much on God's side as he is on our side. He is just as much on our side as he is on God's side. If we aspire to be more than we are, a priest can help. If we regret the mess we've made of our lives, a priest can step in and help. If the Son of Man reveals himself and does the work of a priest, there is much to be in awe of, but nothing to be afraid of. He comes to us and be, he, he came to us and became ordinary so that we would not be afraid to come to him. The priest, that's why I was going to meddle. I had a squirrel moment about pastors who never get close to their people. <laughs> After the clothing, the head and eyes are the first things we look at in a person. If the clothes present a role, the head and eyes show us character. Are the role and the person congruent? Does the person fit the uniform? The head and eyes of the Son of Man show him to be the forgiven and the forgiving person. The mediator both does and is his work. The priest is the one who gives evidence that all is pure between us and God. He is pure. His head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. Remember the prophet's promise. Your sins are like scarlet. I believe it was Isaiah. They shall be as white as snow. They shall become like wool. Remember? Remember the palmist? I mean, psalmist prayer? Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be whiter than snow. It happened. Christ is the fulfilled promise and the answered prayer. He is clean. He is pure. He is holy. Not only is he pure, he is purifying. His eyes were like flames of fire. 
a host of images just come racing through our minds. The fire flaming eyes when we say the fire flaming eyes of the Son of Man. The pillar of fire, the burning bush, altar fires, the fiery furnace, the fiery chariots. Fire penetrates and transforms. Holiness gets inside us. And when it gets inside us, it changes us. Christ's gaze penetrates and purifies. Allow him to look into you. Don't turn away in shame, but allow him to look into you. He doesn't look at us. He looks into us. We're not a spectacle to him. We are invaded by him. He is a consuming fire that only that which cannot be consumed may stand forth eternal. It is the nature of God, so terribly pure that it destroys all that is not pure. He will have purity. It is not that fire will burn us if we do not worship, but that the fire will burn us until we worship. And go on burning within us until all that is foreign yields to the force of the presence of God. Woo! His feet were like burnished bronze refined as in a furnace. We've already talked about Daniel's vision and the, the, the contrast. And so I'm going to, uh, I think I said, described enough of that to jump over this part. The son of man, the Christ, comes on the scene, born in a stable with the animals, lives a humble existence like a servant. He washes the feet of his disciples, his followers, and completely shatters this preconceived image of what they thought the Son of Man would look like and how he would come. But this rock did indeed strike down the idea, this image, when he took his last breath on the cross. He walked into hell and set millions of people free, breaking the chains off of them with the key in his hand and destroying the reign of the dark one. Daniel's vision was true. It just didn't look like to people what they thought of because it was, a, it, was, it was happening in another realm. He came into the earth, but there was a dark, reigning, demonic force that needed to be destroyed, and Jesus came and became the sacrifice, bled out, was pierced and took the final breath and said, it is finished. He was only talking about the sacrifice because when that breath left his body, the work began and the chains were taken and thrown off of the people and, and that were already dead. And, and then three days later, he comes forth. Okay. In the gospel, i got to try to land this plane, and I think I might be getting close. In the gospel of John, Christ is described. Now, this is John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In the gospel of John, Christ is described as the Word. 
more than any other gospel writer, he presents us with a Christ speaking. The Bible begins with God speaking, speaking into existence first creation and then redemption. The speaking develops into conversation as people learn to respond or pray using their gift of speech. The word God speaks is important. The word we speak is important. How something is said matters as much as what is said. I'll say that again. How something is said matters as much as what is said. So much is conveyed by our tone. We know at once whether the speaker is timid, hesitant, bored. I hate listening to bored preachers. <laughs> Impulsive or angry. You ever heard an angry preacher? We interpret all words through a screen of sound. The meaning of the word receives its nuance by the sound of the voice that speaks it. We prepare our response. We understand based on the sound. So before we are told what the Son of Man says, we are introduced to his way of speaking. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. It describes the sound of his voice. His voice is in proportion to his appearance. Awesome and commanding. Our response, even before we understand what he is saying, our fleshly bodies respond in worship. We don't even discern what's being said, but we respond to the sound of this mighty voice. Sometimes it takes us weeks, days, years to fully understand what was said. But the sound of his voice causes us to worship. And then Christ, whole, did I say Christ? I'm sorry, Christ, there's always a T on that. You ever hear preachers talk about Christ? And I'm always going, t, t, when I hear Christ. T, uh, and I find myself doing it again. When Christ t, holds the seven stars in his right hand. Right hand means ready for use. Say, ready for use. A soldier with a sword in his right hand is ready to fight. A shepherd with a staff in his right hand is at work. A hammer in the right hand is ready to pound a nail into a loose board. What is in my right hand is what I am capable of doing and what, in fact, I'm ready to do. That's why I brought this today. I needed to have something in my hand. It's powerful. What does Christ do? He runs the cosmos. It's that simple. The planets do not control us. Christ controls the planets. Later in the vision, Revelation 120, the stars will be identified as angels of the seven churches. God's messengers bringing his word and glory into the midst of the church. 
In Hebrews it says, the word of God is living and active, active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. This is Hebrews 4 and 12. Of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In a similar way, John uses the sword to demonstrate what takes place when Christ speaks. It is a military force when he opens his mouth. Christ does not come with the sword. He ordered Peter to put his sword away. But with the word, which is like a sword, God's will is articulated sharply and penetratingly out of Christ's mouth. His words conquer. Christ's words are not limp. They cut through resistance. They divide good from evil, overcome rebellion, and establish righteousness. The power that the world acknowledges might come from the mouth of a gun. But the power that the person of faith respects comes from the mouth of Christ. What do we do? I'm almost done. I promise. I promise. John used seven descriptives to describe the Son of Man. He used seven items to describe the Son of Man. The first and last items were the white head and the shining face, and they're most important. They represent forgiveness and blessing, and they're the first and final impressions we get when we see him. The second and sixth of the seven items are the eyes and the mouth. They're the organs of relationship. Sight and sound being the chief means of communication. Christ shows God to be in relationship with us. The third and fifth items, feet and right hand, are the paired members of the body that represent capability. Feet give solid support and mobility. The right hand is the instrument of the will. God is capable and active on our behalf. The fourth item in the seven is the voice. His voice is at the center. All prophetic and apostolic words converge in the voice that thunders sounds of passionate love and mercy. One other thing, the vision is both heard and seen. The things that are seen in Acts, Luke wrote about it in Acts 1 and 1. The things that are seen, head, hair, eyes, feet, right hand face, and heard the thundering voice and the sword-like speech are throughout Scripture. And in every case, they represent revelation. The vision that John sees in this first chapter is the most elaborate, but it's not the only vision of Christ in the book of Revelation. This is just the first one. There's also a vision of the lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's in Revelation 5. It shows the action of redemption and the cross. The vision of the birth of Jesus thrown on a cosmic screen is in Revelation 12. The vision of the lamb surrounded by 144,000, Revelation 14. 
the Son of Man crowned and armed for judgment. Revelation 14 as well. Then chapter 19, the vision of Christ mounted and, mounted and leading the armies of heaven with the title, King of kings and Lord of lords. And finally, in Revelation 22, there is the Christ of the second coming. And all seven visions of Christ are seen through the pages of Revelation. We see on one hand Christ walking through Galilee with these rather dense fishermen helping people in same verses, suitable for memorizing in children's church or placing on a decorative plaque on your wall and we think we understand. But John's vision trains us to re-see Jesus. He is the center in the time and place that it was written he said, these things must shortly come to pass. The vision is not just vision. Intelligence and will are also addressed. On seeing Christ in the vision, John falls in a dead faint. And he's lifted to his feet with the reassuring words, fear not. Same thing he said to Peter. Walking on the water, don't be afraid. And his fear turned to trust. He said to Mary Magdalene, don't be afraid. And her panic was changed into excitement. And then he said, write what you see. The, the vision initiates a task. John has work to do, carrying out his pastoral work of telling the mystery among the communities of worshiping, suffering Christians. It's not a puzzle that baffles Revelation is not a puzzle that was meant to baffle them, but it's an infinity of information waiting to be discovered. I said to Tanner, it's like when you peel a layer of an onion, oh, there's more. You think you're getting to, there's, there's more, you keep peeling. The more I read, the more I realize how much I don't know, and I start digging and find something else. Prior to this vision, John is on the prison island in isolated exile. He's cut off from his churches by a decree from Rome. Rome was the ascending power. The gospel had been proved weak and ineffective through most of the people viewing. Two generations after Pentecost, they've been thoroughly discredited. Everything John has believed and preached is, by all evidence, a disaster. And then, without a single thing happening to Rome, no earthquake to, sh to change the shape of the earth, no revolution to change the government, John is now on his feet. He has a message. He has a job. He has a means of bringing God home to his churches. The difference between John the prisoner and John the pastor is Christ, the Son of Man, the vision. John, away from his churches, fretting from the lack of intimate knowledge of his people, sees 
the penetrating, attentive eyes of his Savior. John, weak from, from confinement, sees the strong, burnished feet of the Lord. John, used to speaking with authority to his strange sheep, is now without voice. And here's the authoritative voice of the ruler of the world. John, homesick for his congregation, sees them held in the right hand of the shepherd. John, at the mercy of the political sword, sees the word of God proceeding from the mouth of Jesus like a sword. John, nearing the end of his days, the energy of his countenance eclipsed, sees the presence of a radiating Jesus. By virtue of the vision, the crushed exile becomes a vigorous prophet. Visions, if they are truly visions, make things happen. John exiled is now John empowered. The vision did it. From rocky Patmos, he's lifted to the realm of the Spirit on the Lord's day and given a vision of Christ. He's returned to earth and made a pastor again, this time a pastor with power. How many pastors have we seen in our day succumb to the pressure of Patmos? Some have ended their lives not knowing what to do with the weight of their church. Some have just closed up shop this um, we need vision that brings fire back to our pulpits this might not sound like a fiery sermon but I'm telling you I am burning with what God is revealing and unveiling in these months as we study and dig and realize we don't have to be afraid of this book we don't have to be afraid of what might happen because we know that even as he spoke to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3 and said, I have this against you, but in each case, he gave an invitation. Will you return to me? Turn to back to your first love. Hold on. One place, I, I won't force myself on you. Will you let me? It's always this wooing, drawing. It's, I guess I've got this against you, but you can make it right. It's not judgment to destroy you. I don't want to take away the light. So, Father, we close this service. We close this service with a promise. on fire, a promise of revival, a promise of your presence, a 
promise of the beautiful face of Jesus shining on us. God, we receive the promise. Why don't you just hold your hands like this and say, we receive the promise. We receive the vision. Invite him now. Take a moment and invite him to invade you. Invite him to invade. If he can't get you while you're awake, ask him to invade while you're asleep. Whatever it costs, whatever it takes, there must be a visitation. Spirit of God, Spirit of God, lift us up. We've been already made to sit together in heavenly places. Help us find our place at the table. Let us function in the heavenlies. Let us function and do the work of the kingdom and know that we reign with Christ. There is a day coming when everything changes and our bodies are changed, but we don't have to wait for that day to reign with you. You've given us authority and you've determined that you will do nothing in the earth without the involvement of praying people. You've chosen to do it this way. You're not, you could just come down and turn this thing around without any of our help, but you've chosen to do it in such a way that you will encounter your people. You'll bring fire to the pulpits and in turn bring fire to the congregations and turn the world upside. Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.